I found this recently. Uh, somebody interviewed Philip Roth about his career as a writer. And the question was, looking back, how do you recall your 50 plus years as a writer? And Roth replied, exhilaration and groaning, frustration and freedom, inspiration and uncertainty, abundance and emptiness, blazing forth and muddling through the day by day repertoire of osculating dualities that any talent withstands and tremendous solitude too. And the silence, 50 years in a room silent as the bottom of a pool, eking out when all went well. My minimum daily allowance of usable prose. I think most people go through that kind of isolation and hardship. We're hearing about that because Philip Roth has, has not only a substantial career, but an extensively long one. But I, I think the point, I, the reason why I'm sharing this is if you want to accomplish anything that you set your eyes on, you have to go through a bit of discomfort and in some cases suffering. You want to do something new, you have to become somebody new. I mean, it's just kind of the antithesis of that is doing the same thing and expecting different results. I think somebody once said that that's the definition of madness. I, I, I don't know about that. But, you know, my, I, I feel like, and I group myself in this, we sometimes get so results-oriented, you know, outcomes, outcomes, outcomes. It's hard for us to really grasp the process. And it's hard for us to kind of strip away our emotional attachments to where the destination. Oh, I need this. And, you know, why am I not there yet? What's going on? Um, I'm scared. This sucks. I'm a failure. And really kind of extrapolating the lessons of simply putting in the work. Or as Philip Ross said, being in that quiet room by yourself it's not torture and it's not failure if you're learning so I have a special uh, episode today uh, speaking of learning and, and putting forth work um, a fan similar to yourself reached out to me I shouldn't say fan. You guys are friends. A friend reached out to me who I, I, I've never met and didn't know. And, you know, we were corresponding and, you know, kind of my new platform uh, lately has been for guests to kind of pick topics of what they want. And, you know, in the past, it's just been kind of really open-ended and cathartic and seeing where this goes. And I, I basically just kind of pivot conversations and let the guests kind of drive it. Um, and that's still kind of the same. But lately I've been trying to create a, a platform where what, you know, what guests want to talk about. And she said, you know, she's uh, from England. And I thought I already had my brain was already going, you know, let's talk about England. 
oh, I can't wait. You know, Winston Churchill is, is in the news now. And I want to talk about culture. I want to talk about, you know, the, the rich history of, of, of London. And she said, I want to talk about sleep. And I was like, oh, okay, let's do it. So that's what this is. You know, we, we don't, and she didn't, um, she didn't have a whole lot of time. So we didn't dilly dally about, um, you know, if she likes Fulty Towers as much as I do, or, or, you know, if she's ever tried, you know, a Cheeto or a Snowball or we got straight in and it was good and it helped me. I felt like I really liked this. It's different than the other conversations you might be privy to on this show. It's really kind of, she gives, she unloads a lot of information. And it's very fascinating. I think even if, like, the topic of sleep may not be as interesting to you, you have to admit, we all do it. So, but we don't think about it. We don't have to think about it. But it is so essential to our health and obviously very beneficial. Charlotte's been... uh, researching sleep for an extensive amount of time she's working on a book and i felt like a real big dummy talking to her and uh but she's delightful and she's great uh she called me from her home in south kensington my lovely conversation with charlotte helmore starts right now you want a podcast great so you have some audio on your website that nobody goes to you listen in to vandal tron's curious world podcast Sit back and relax. Everything's going to be cool. Of kids in England and Wales um, are currently believed to be suffering from some kind of sleep problem. Now, for the most part, that is behavioural in origin. Um, so we're running this event to uh, open people's eyes, I guess, partly to the value of getting a good night's sleep for physical and mental and emotional health. Um, and we're trying to do that creatively by thinking about sleep's history. So we're looking back to the early modern world, um, the so-called golden age of sleep, um, and trying to draw through a few lessons that we can apply to modern day practices. To think about why it was early modern people seem to have slept uh, much more um, effectively, much more restfully than we do now. Well, that's really interesting. Uh, what can you explain a little bit more of what you mean about the problems with you know when you were talking about the modern world? For the most part, we're just looking at persistent uh, sleep deprivation. And what I mean by that is that kids and actually most adults in uh, modern industrialised societies in the West um, are getting consistently less sleep every night than healthcare practitioners advise. Um, So I went to Berry High School just this week actually to speak to a bunch of 12 and 13 year olds. Um, They're supposed to be getting about nine and a half hours every night. Um, And I found one boy who was getting five and a half hours because he was playing on his PlayStation 4 until 1am, getting up in the morning after about, um, after only five, five and a bit hours sleep and feeling dreadful. Um, And we know that that persistent sleep loss is linked to all kinds of horrible developments. So um, it's linked to higher rates of obesity, um, because what you do, of course, when you're tired is is find another source of energy. So you're you're much hungrier um, when you wake up tired in the morning. We also know that kids are not performing at their best at school because they are um, 
consistently underslept. Um, and we think most of that uh, sleep loss is due to um, not eating the right things as bedtime approaches, but also to overstimulation um, and the use of devices with blue lights uh, being emitted from them, which of course stops the production of melatonin in the brain. And that's your sleepy hormone that will get you to sleep at the right time. So how re um, how recent is this? It's a harder one to answer. Um, the technology here is obviously important. So uh, a lot of historians are wondering whether the onset of industrialization is a, a major kind of game changer for the way that we practice sleep as we start to shift to a much more sort of mechanized um, system of clock time and factory time. And of course, that coincides with the widespread um, use of artificial lighting technologies as well. So um, the shift from your sleeping habits being driven more by the seasonal patterns of light darkness to a kind of mechanized artificial electric lighting system is one that we think plays a really important part um, in shifting the, the kind of physical environment. Um, but I think also our our habits of sociability at bedtime have really transformed in, in the digital age. So it's only really in the last sort of 10 to 20 years that we have these um, handheld devices that are now a kind of routine part of children and young people's social interactions. Um, so I think that has uh, had a lot to do with the acceleration of these kinds of problematic routines in more recent times. Okay, can you, okay, so you mentioned about the, um, what you said, the golden age of sleep. Uh, what, why was that called the golden age of sleep? And, and why was that so important? Um, and how is that different from, say, you know, now, 2018? Um, well, I think there are two principal reasons, and they're both about uh, motivations. They have very powerful motivations for looking after their sleep in this period. And that's because um, getting a good night's sleep between eight and 10 hours per night on a regular basis um, sat right at the center of a preventative culture of healthcare. So it's, it's very different to the kind of responsive mode uh, situation that we have now. Um, medical interventions were expensive and not particularly effective in the early modern period. So actually it's the household that is the central space in which uh, people's sleep quality is managed on a daily basis. So um, they make sure that they look after their sleep because um, keeping that in, in good regulation, along with getting enough uh, exercise in the day, enough fresh air, um, is how you keep your bodily fluids in harmony with each other and how you maintain good long-term physical and mental health. So it's part of that very distinctive uh, preventative healthcare culture. But sleeping well and having good regular bedtimes is also a really important way of people demonstrating that they're a good Christian. So it's a, a powerful part of their motivations um, as faithful people um, that, you know, that's, that's one of the really key reasons that they um, were really concerned when they weren't getting enough sleep because they thought not only is it bad for my health, but I'm also disrespecting uh, the God that I believe in by not practicing regular bedtimes. Oh, can you, can, can you talk a little bit more about the 
moral implications of, of sleep uh, in during this period? Absolutely. So the sort of moral ethical framework around sleep is, uh, is very different to the one we have today. Um, I mean, you know, you can uh, find any number of examples of people celebrating the fact that they only need sort of four or five hours sleep per night. Margaret Thatcher was famously one of them. I think Donald Trump is another. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I can't speak for, for the rest of the world. I would imagine in, in, uh, in, in, in England is the same, but certainly in, in America, uh, you, we have this culture of, you know, the go-getter. And we, we are astounded and we award the go-getter. And it almost seems like, you know, uh, we have certain people who are very proud that they don't need sleep. They do think that, but it's unfortunately um, just not true at all. There's a huge amount of evidence emerging now from neuroscience sleep laboratories that are mapping the devastating effects that um, prolonged sleep loss has on body and mind. So um, there are now really powerful links connecting um, long-term sleep loss to higher rates of cancer, to higher rates of diabetes, to particular forms of dementia, including Alzheimer's. Um, so you can never actually catch up uh, on the sleep that you lose each and every single night. Um, and recent figures suggest that most adults in uh, modern Western societies are only getting uh, an average of six hours each night. Um, and, and we're supposed to be getting it at an average of eight. So I, so, so I, I guess my question is, can we in, in our current society... Can we extrapolate anything that is useful from this this uh, golden era of sleep? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, a lot of the things that early modern people did to um, encourage a good night's sleep um, are still important today. So, for example, they engaged in really helpful pre-bedtime habits. So they read a lot. Um, they took part in sort of calming activities like embroidery, sewing. Um, of course, they, they knelt down and prayed at the bedside. And if you think about the physical and emotional effects that that activity has upon your body, it's actually a really effective way of calming um, the body and brain down at that crucial moment in the evening. Um, it's a way of putting the, the cares of the day to one side and thinking about um, higher, more important matters. So they did that, but they also made sure that they um, that their diets were well set up um, to encourage a, a natural and healthy night's sleep. So they prioritised foods that wouldn't irritate the stomach at night time, and they prioritised ingredients that were thought to have a cooling effect. So they ate an awful lot of lettuce <laughs> and... Um, Households were also manufacturing uh, sleep remedies that they could just have on the shelf um, and, and pull off whenever they were um, having a disturbed night's sleep. And most of those um, soporific remedies uh, work on this cooling principle as well. The idea being um, that, a dis that disturbed sleep was usually caused by an overheating of the stomach or of the brain. So they took um, they took care for notes of, of what they were eating and, and when they were eating it um, and made sure that, that good healthy sleep routines were part of a more kind of holistic healthcare practice. So when you talk about, you know, you said that they, they ate lettuce to calm themselves down and 
I'm curious, what kind of fears were they going through? Um, you know, what were they so afraid of? Yeah, so I think all societies um, across time and culture uh, note some kind of apprehension of, uh, of danger at bedtime. Um, but of course, the source of those dangers and what makes cultures distinct from one another, so for early modern people, um, sleep was very closely linked to uh, death. And actually, if you look at some of the content of bedtime prayers, they look very much like uh, miniature rites of passage. So it's the same formulation of words that you get when people are preparing themselves as they're about to die, because there are any number of examples in scripture, which was obviously um, very well known in those years, and in classical literature, um, where sleepers were taken in the night, and were destroyed by enemies, or indeed their souls were corrupted by the devil. So bedside prayers are actually an attempt to beg for God's protection during the vulnerable hours of sleep, because of course that's the period of, of time in which we're not able um, to defend ourselves and to discern the approach um, of potential dangers. Um, on a more practical level, of course, they were also very worried about uh, bed bugs, which were pretty endemic. Um, and we know that they uh, went to great lengths to um, cleanse their wooden bedsteads, which were often very old and very uh, cosy places for bed bugs to hide. Um, they also used to bathe their faces and hands with things like rose water um, in order to. Um, to make sure that the bed bugs didn't come near those exposed parts of the body that weren't covered by the bed clothes. Um, and I've even found one episode of somebody hanging a piece of cow's dung at the end of their beds to try and attract the bed bugs away from the, the sleeper's body. So it probably didn't smell very nice. So they were concerned about bed bugs, but, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, they were also concerned about the devil, specifically the devil. Is that, is that right? They were, absolutely, yeah. Because... Um, it is in the night that the devil is at the peak of his power um, when his servants are thought to be most active in the world. So if you think about um, all of the stories we have of, uh, or reports, I should say, of early modern witchcraft, um, they're usually most active at night time um, when, of course, the guard of faithful Christians is down somewhat. And so that's when we find instance, a lot of instances of the devil creeping up on people um you know we also have nightmares that are often thought to be inspired by the devil they can have bodily origins but um there are things that can be induced by the devil's approach as well so people are um concerned to make sure that their sleep posture is correct to try and avoid the onset of a nightmare so they they try and avoid for the most part sleeping on their backs because they think that's the position in which uh, nightmares are most likely to come on um, and sleep posture actually is is kind of an interesting topic in itself because most sleepers were recommended uh, to rest uh, on a stack of pillows so that there was a, a gentle slope created between their, their heads and their stomachs to prevent the regurgitation of food during the night. Um, but they were also advised to sleep first on the right side of the body, which was thought to be hotter than the left. So... Um, it heated and helped to speed the process of digestion in the first half of the night. And then uh, when you went to bed for your second sleep, because of course this is a period in which people are taking 
two separate phases of sleep for the most part, rather than the one consolidated cycle that we have now. Um, when they return to bed for their second sleep, um, they're advised to turn on to the left, cooler side of the body to release the vapours that have built up. Um, and so they'll feel refreshed in the morning when they, uh, when they get out of bed. So there you have it, folks. Uh, a little bit about uh, sleep, primarily in the uh, quote-unquote golden age. I apologize. You know, our, toward the end, our phone conversation kept uh, dropping, and I didn't want. It was it was a little difficult to edit the piece, and basically, what you're missing is the uh, oh goodbye and, and and what I asked about. So she just mentioned about the second sleep, and I just basically asked about. You know, between these two sleep sessions, are, are people just kind of fucking? And a, a, anyway, um, hope you enjoyed it. Again, it's a little kind of deviation from what we no normally do here. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you to uh, Charlotte Humphrey for uh, telling us all about sleep. Um, as I always say, you're a part of this conversation too. You're just on the quiet side, so I appreciate you so much, um, Bodhisattva. Go out and do good in the world. Thank you, everybody. Seeing more and feeling less Saying no but meaning yes This is all I ever meant That's the message that I sent Things very wrong.